Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Welcome to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. I'm Rich. Oh, you're not George. What's going on here? I'm a, I'm a stand-in for George tonight. <laughs> we are going off script tonight. Um, welcome to uh, A Nice Place to Brew. This is episode 41. Um, we are going away from home-brewed beer for, this, uh, for the topic of today's podcast, and we are going into wine. And this will be a follow-up to episode 29, which was recorded a year ago, right around this time. And um, Rich is here on the show today as a uh, as once again a uh, participant here in the podcast, kind of with the aftermath of the 2019 uh, wine project. Thanks for having me, Jason. Oh, it's no, it's great to have you. Thanks, thanks so much for being here. Um, Rich, of course, is a um, is a fellow home brewer as well, and he was nice enough that he's got a big bottle of uh, New England IPA that recently brewed. Can't wait to taste it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So, um, we are now in our second year of uh, of winemaking. Oh, we're going right into the uh, the beer bottle. I don't know if I needed an introduction or if I just like crack this open right now. Oh, uh, you know what? Go ahead, fill us in. <laughs> tell us, tell us about it. Oh, okay. So, the idea behind this beer was we came into some hops. Um, my co-brewer Tom has a couple of vines going, and we actually ended up with like eleven ounces of dried hops, uh, loose leaf hop. Um, I thought what better to do with it than a dry hop, um, an IPA and I decided to go with a new England style IPA for this one. Um, pretty low on the IBUs. Um, there are some, and I'm not exactly sure like the best way to go about a new England IPA. Um, I feel like there's not quite as much out there and then in the interwebs about the, the new England's. As far as making a New England IPA? Okay. Mash, uh, well, how do you call it? Just your your uh, your grain bill, like what to throw in there. Um, I've seen some, like a site that was recommending like between 10 and 20% of like uh, flaked wheat and flaked oats mm-hmm. or some mixture. I believe that's what gives the New England IPA the cloudiness ah, that it's okay. commonly attributed to. So that was kind of like our target for the grain bill, and um, so yeah, this is uh, this is the result of that. So, Rich was nice enough to invite me to the brew day where this was made, so I got to see Rich's uh, brew setup for the very first time. All right, very basic setup. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good as the bottle opens. Uh, before we get too far into this, I do want to give out our social media links. Uh, look us up on Facebook and Instagram at A Nice Place to Brew and Nice Place to Brew. Our website is www.aniceplacetobrew.com. Um, check us out. Send us comments. Send us messages. Uh, we love to hear from you. That poured really nicely. Not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. So this was bottle conditioned for about two weeks Two Prior weeks. To, okay. Yep, two weeks. And your first taste of it, this beer is still very young, I believe. It's pretty young. Yeah. I think it could use a little more time. Um, but, yeah, in particular, I, I, I tried a little bit 
when it was still like just over a week just to kind of get a, a feel for what it's going to be um i was a slightly disappointed and I, I think it may be just due to the fact that it was so young so hopefully it mellows out and uh, improves with some time okay cheers cheers semi-citrusy citrusy yes i agree i'm not sure if it was exactly what i was going for maybe the case but um i will say i think that's probably this this is likely the best beer offering that you've you've brought here oh yeah (laughs) yeah i I really mean that thanks i mean you you hit on a couple of things really well number one um the carbonation is damn near perfect for a for a non-kegged beer uh in two weeks bottle conditioned i mean that's that head you see on it is just damn near perfect um the the color in the body is exactly what you would expect maybe not so much from a new england ipa but def you're del you're definitely well within the ipa category with this great um there's no obvious off flavors at least from the first couple of sips that i'm getting and you've got some very pleasant hoppy notes that's uh <clears throat> Definitely due to the 11 ounces of hops that we that we picked. All, all of um, them whole leaf. Whole leaf. And we had two varieties. And to be honest, I couldn't tell you which two they were. Um, it's been so long since we planted those things. I want to say that it's um, Cascade is one of them. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure what the other one would be. We may have to bring you back for a future show to talk about uh, growing hops. Oh, absolutely. I that's a subject that I have gravitated away from, but I do think it's I, I do think that conversation has a place here on a nice place to brew. Don't need too much space, uh just uh somewhere for the vines to train and and they kind of just go nuts on the uh, by themselves after a couple years, 2-3 years. So a place like rural Virginia. Oh, would absolutely. Be a, a pretty a pretty ideal setting for uh for growing hops. George has talked about it throughout the years. Uh, he's, he's not gotten to the point of pulling the trigger on it just yet. Uh, before we get further into the show, um, I will cheers to uh, George, who is not here with us on the show. Um, he is currently vacationing in beautiful Aruba. Oh, nice. Yes. So Cheers, uh, George. Cheers. And uh, of the reasons to miss a podcast recording, that's a pretty good one. Very good. <laughs> sitting, he's sitting on a beach enjoying a craft beer, probably right now, <laughs> enjoying some very, very nice warm weather. Absolutely. All right. So, segueing away from the from this beer sampling we have, um, we're going to talk about this year's um, wine project. Uh, we went uh, we went upwards from what we did last year. We took some lessons from what we did last year, and we learned some new lessons around uh, around this year, around this year as well. So, always a learning process. It it absolutely is. Um, I'll say on the onset, I think um, I think the quality of the product is is showing for the progress that we've made, and that and that excites me. I feel every year our not only are batch sizes um, exploding oh, in, in we'll, size. We'll, we'll get into um, that. <laughs> but the, definitely the quality is there. I think we're doing it right. Um, and for being relatively new, this is being 
my third season. I think Jason, it's only your second season in. Second, yes. Yeah, I think we're I think we're doing pretty well. So there's varying different ways that one can get started, and the way Rich and I have done it is we're doing the entire process start to finish from the picking of the grapes. And before we go into the uh, the picking, we'll, and we'll go through the process of winemaking a little bit throughout today's show. We went through this in great detail on episode 29. We won't go over all these details uh, in full as we did on this episode, but we can give kind of an overview. Um, many different uh, uh, many different home winemakers will not partake in grape picking. They will find a source for regular juice and then just handle the entire process post-fermentation. Rich and I have not done that. We have gone as far as to as to find a vineyard, pick our grapes, and do everything really, really start to finish. So, um, Rich, do you want to talk a little bit about the vineyard that we've uh, gone to two years now? Absolutely. Um, so this place is just south of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, in a town called Oregon and just a small farm. And I want to say they have maybe 50 rows of grapevines planted. Um, they have a whole slew of varieties that are hardy enough to be grown in the Wisconsin region where, where obviously we know it gets pretty cold up in Wisconsin. Um, and the vines more or less thrive. Um, I guess year to year they do have some issues with weather uh, inclement weather, whether it be the cold or lack of rain, things like that. So they do a pretty good job keeping you informed of what varieties are available, how much they have on hand, and how much of it is actually ready to be picked. Um, so this can help you out a lot when you're planning. Um, they have a great website. They tell you all these different things. So you can hop on and see what they have. And um, they do have descriptions of all the different varieties of grapes that they have. So if it's not wine you are into, like for example, they have the Concords. A lot of people use that for either juice or jams and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's your it's kind of the world is your oyster when you when you head over there. One of the things I learned this year from doing this for a second year in a row was two things. Number one, the variety available was quite different than what we saw last year and number two the prices were different this year than they were last year as well this is something that winemakers all over the world are contending with there's certain things that you just can't control you you're not gonna be able to control the rain output uh for a given season this you know the how much sunlight there is um all the factors in irrigation um some years are going to be better than others there's just there's no way around it. And Rich, you and I kind of experienced that for the first time this year. Oh, for sure. Um, I think we had uh, come in come into the uh, vineyard in mind um, for certain types of grapes. I know last year it was Saint Pepin turned out to be a very great white, um, and I believe really it was really nice. The Frontenac was a red that turned out very well. Neither of the two were actually available for us to pick this year. Right. Um, so we kind of took a detour. Um, we ended up picking Foch, which is a French hybrid. Um, and the other one was Concord, which is probably the most common in the Midwest region around where, where we live. Um, just because they're pretty hardy and 
can grow anywhere, I think. So So one thing about Concord grapes is they're not known as one of the sweeter grapes, but to Rich's point, they are one of the more common grapes here in the Midwest. And that became a key factor in some of our handling, which we'll go into in, uh, later on when we uh, talk about fermentation. And before we head into that, Jason, I know I was talking about this vineyard. Um, I'm not sure if I mentioned the name of it. It's called Mitchell Vineyard. From Oregon, Wisconsin. Oregon, Wisconsin. Uh, www.mitchell-vineyard.com. And just to give you a quick rundown, I'm just going to list some of the grapes that they have here. Uh, we're looking at Concord, Foch, Marquette, St. Croix, Petite Pearl, Frontenac, Delaware, La Crescent, St. Pepin, Muscat, and Atasca. So that's, so that's 11 different varieties. Quite quite the spread there. Um, but it, unfortunately, it is um, sometimes hard to get what you want. Um, you got to pay attention and uh, make a prayer to the rain gods, I guess, uh, <laughs> at the same time so that the uh, weather's appropriate for the grapes. Here's a little bit of wine trivia before we go further. How many grapevines generally make up one acre? Ooh. So I'm supposed to guess here, huh? Yep. I'll say 20. 400. Okay. <laughs> 400 grapevines can be planted in one acre. And so how so how many tons of grapes per acre? <laughs> I don't have that. Neither do I. No. I, was, I was hoping you would. <laughs> I do have this, though. How much wine can be produced from one acre of grapevines? 200 bottles. 800 gallons. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I got a whole page of trivia. We'll we'll throw those out as, as the episode goes on. We need to buy an acre of land, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Plant our own. Come on. I'm in. All right. I, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> George, how much land do you have? <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot. He's he's gonna hear this and he'll be, be raising his hand and be like, guys, let's talk. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, anyways. We went up to the vineyard uh, right in the middle of September. And if I remember correctly, we were towards the tail end of the the picking availability when we had gone up there. Is that right? I think for some of the grapes, that is true. Um, I forget there was one of the varieties that we were eyeballing, and I, I think they said that they weren't ready yet. We're not ready yet. Okay, got it. So they do check the bricks level, which is pretty much... Sugar. Sugars. So they go out there with, with their refractometers, and, and they kind of keep tabs on... And, uh, uh, monitor the sugar levels and when it's appropriate to, to pick. Right. You were right. It was about mid-September. Okay. Yeah. I believe it was the 15th, so right in the middle. And we went up there with the goal that we were going to make about three different batches. Yes. We didn't even have have varieties completely picked out. We were both equally excited about what we made last year with the St. Pepin grape. So I think we both had high hopes that we would be able to repeat that. But supply wasn't there, so we had to kind of come back uh, come back together and come up with a different plan. We did. Um, one of the things that we were planning, um, or at least something I was very excited to try, was to make a rosé-style wine. Um 
and just with the fact that some of the grapes that weren't available that we were eyeballing, um, I thought, well, why not just kind of experiment and see what we can do? Uh, and we ended up picking the Concord grape variety for that. Um, and in the end, it actually turned out very well. Definitely. We had a lot of grapes. A lot of grapes. Yeah. So we, uh, we we got smart. We, uh, we, we came with more hands this year than we had in the past. Uh, it was just me and Rich and uh, last year. We did bring a th- third person with us, Kyle, who was a tremendous addition. Um, still with one car, and we came back with more than 300 pounds of grapes between uh, between the three of us that day. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the tickets as we speak, and it looks like it's 357. 357 pounds. Pounds. To make what came out to be... 22 gallons, roughly? Did we get a total bottle count? No. Oh boy, this is bad. Oh <laughs> gosh, I feel so underprepared. We should know this because we just finished uh, the last of the bottling just two days ago. We did, <laughs> which is spread across multiple days because the number of varieties, number of bottles, doing it in one day just wasn't practical. Yep. So, so we had three main um, quote unquote batches that we decided to make with this. Um, and Rich mentioned the grape varieties already. We made a we made a f- six gallons of Foch. We made what was supposed to be six gallons of Concord Red, um, supposed to be six gallons of Concord White, um, and we came out a little bit heavy on both of those. So we made some blends on top of that. So we had a total of four different varieties once it was all done. Yeah, and the the other, I guess the main variety that we had was, um, it was a blend between the Foch leftover and the Concord leftovers. Um, I want to say it was roughly the 60-40 mix, I think with Concord on the heavier side. And just to go over one, one basic detail about winemaking, when we talk about reds versus whites, the difference is not is is not just the uh, grape variety that makes it up, but whether or not you ferment with the skins, or if you leave it out. So, right. and we had a we had a variety of both. The Foch is a red grape, and we fermented skins on with that. And I highly recommend using regular plastic pails if you're making a red. It just it keeps everything way cleaner. It's it's just a better environment for it all. On the flip side, you have whites, which you will uh, send through a crusher and then take to a juicer. So when that's all done, all you're left with is liquid. For that, I would sug- I would highly suggest fermenting in a glass carboy. I'm for as far as beer making, I'm very partial to glass carboys unless you have some type of conical fermenter. Um, that's my preference. I think uh, I think just I think it just makes everything overall easier. Um, that's my take on it. Personally, I am happy with the ale pail that I use for homebrewing. <laughs> um, if you're going to do a white or a blush, in which case you you do, in every case, you will run the grapes through a crusher destummer machine, which the vineyard um, very conveniently has and allows you to use. Um, and then that the difference comes after that step where if you're going to do the red style, you want to keep all the skins and the fruit and the juice all together. In that case, a pail absolutely you would want to use. Um, but in the case where you want to make either a blush rosé style or a white, once you get past the crusher destemmer, yet yeah, Jason mentioned you do take it to his uh, like a, a pr- another press then 
uh, and extract just the juice from that pulp. And that's what you're going to ferment to make your, your rosés or whites. And then in that case, personal preference, to be honest, you could do the pale, you could do the carboy, whatever you want to use. Draw a parallel to beer making. I just thought of this a second ago. The act of picking grapes is essentially your quote-unquote brew day. Just you don't have a mash, you don't have a boil, you don't have a cool down. You just, you're visiting a vineyard, cutting down grapes, crushing them, and where applicable, juicing them. Right. Oh, yeah. That's a great analogy. Um, And I would say between the two, if it's something that you are interested in dabbling in, um, I'd say the wine is the easier route to go because I think you so don't too. have to. I, I really do. I know I know some people may have differing opinions. I do feel that winemaking is easier and more forgiving than beer making. Oh, yeah. And and you just you just had mentioned, like, I mean, the fact that you don't have to bring large volumes of liquid um, and and grain, you know, and, and maintain it at certain temperatures and bring it to a boil and a cool down. I mean, that that right there, there's some whole overhead involved. Where with the wine, all you really need is um, a carboy at the bare minimum. Um, or if you'd like, uh, a pale and a carboy com- com- combination, I think, would, would do you pretty well if you wanted to start out doing wine. So one thing that um, one thing that is specific to winemaking and I think is worth covering here, I have this on a, on a section of my notes here about uh, lessons from this year. This is something that Rich knew much more about than I did, and that's uh, Camden tablets. So one of the one of the basic difference differences in winemaking versus beer making is when you have a bunch of fruit compacted into a tight space like a ale pail. The ale pail just from the just from the uh, vineyard environment itself will pick up wild yeast, and where you have yeast and you have sugar, what do you have? That's right, fermentation. So. Camden tablets is one of those safeguards that becomes essential through the winemaking process to make sure that you don't have spontaneous fermentation and spontaneous messes. Rich knew this one better than uh, than I did, and he was he was very quick to identify that. And uh, we didn't even end up leaving the vineyard without without a full Camden tablet edition. Yeah, and I'm and I'm looking it up right now. Um, essentially, Camden tablets are tablets of potassium metabisulfite um and it's basically a preservative um ideally you want to pit i don't pitch this i don't add it to your 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 must i guess is what you would call it right your your uh pre-fermented uh juice your grape juice is, is your must um and yeah and the the idea behind that is to um kill wild yeast ensure there's no uh any sort of random fermentations happening and it's just going to leave you a good substrate for pitching your own yeast of choice. And it's supposed to be good for 24 to 48 hours. Do I have that correct? You do. Okay. All right. We were, so since we were talking about equipment, I do want to make one distinction um, if anyone is interested in getting started here. Um, so if you do go to the brew store, you will find the ale pail, and those are fantastic. Um, they are 6.5 gallons, which is fan- this is great for uh, a six or a five gallon batch of beer. Um, they do make separate wine pails. Um, they are a slightly larger and they are actually a little bit bigger f- from a diameter standpoint. So it's just a wider um, in terms of its shape. Um, and I think the idea behind that is 
when you do decide to make a red, you're going to bring all this pulp and fruit and skins and, and, the, and the juice. Um, you're still aiming for a five to six gallon batch. That extra, set, you know, what the reason it's seven and a half gallons is to allow for some headspace. Because what's going to happen is that fruit, that's going to end up floating up to the top once active fermentation takes place because of all the CO2, CO2 that's being released. It's, so, it's no different than what you experience experience in beer making. Right. Only, well, my, my point is um, headspace to allow for the fruit that's going to float up. Right. That's that's the, the benefit to the larger wine pail for wine versus just using an ale pail. Either would work. Um, just if you know you're going to do wine, you, you may as well get the, the larger pail for wine. The beer equivalent, of course, would be Croizen. Right, exactly. And it happens for the exact same reasons that Rich is talking about, where you have a risen fermentation. is It's all that pressure buildup from, um, from the yeast activity. Uh, and his point about having the added headspace is a point very well taken. I wish I would have taken his proper advice before um, pitching the yeast in one of... Uh, in one of our varieties, because I unfortunately uh, paid a paid a heavy price for not listening to Rich's advice, and uh, yeah, needless to say, I putting or I should say, putting it very lightly, I had a giant giant disaster on my hands that uh, frankly was not easy to clean up. So, word of the wise, just make sure you have proper headspace. Proper equipment in general. I, th- I think in our case, Jason, that's, that's fair. That's fair. I think we went a little hog wild in the vineyard, and we just picked so many grapes, and we 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 shoved them into these pails, and we were literally yeah we maxed out. We were we are we were above our capacity. Let's put it that way. Oh yeah, and, absolutely. We were, and I think that's the reason that you had the issues that you did. And when I saw how full those pails were, <laughs> I was like, Jason, I don't know yeah. about this. Yeah, and he Jason was so confident. Uh, I was adamant. <laughs> I, I was adamant for all the wrong reasons. And then, Rich had the absolute right idea. And then, so what happened, Jason? Oh, I mean, you, you know what um, what all that added pressure results in. And uh, pale lids are, will only support so much weight. And um, when they blow off, they blow off. And so, that's what I was left dealing with. So the actual lid did pry open. Yep. Wow. Coated uh, the uh, basically an entire room floor in my house. So, wow. So okay. So the airlock must have gotten clogged at some point. Was not allowing any of the air to escape, and Correct. they just decided to bust open. Yep. Yep. So sorry, Jason. <laughs> I will not make that mistake again. Next time, I will listen to Rich. We either need to pick less grapes, <laughs> no. buy more buckets. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we I think we see what direction we're going. I don't see us going backwards in terms of uh volume or uh plans. We only scale up, right? We don't we don't scale down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially when we're as pleased with our product as we are. So. <laughs> so anyways, that was uh the <laughs> that was the uh that was the lesson there. Um, a couple points about yeast. Um, we used two different varieties of yeast for the uh, for the reds. We used uh, Lalvin RC uh, two twelve, 
and we use D47 for the uh, for the the blush for the Concord White. Um, I've used D47 for a number of different projects. I've made uh, fruit wines with it. I've made mead with it. It's a good versatile wine yeast. And drawing another parallel from beer making, wine yeast is designed to ferment 100% of all fermentable sugars. So when we talk about final gravity as we do in beer making, wine making with proper treatment and proper yeast you can expect to ferment down all the way down to 1.00, which will leave you with as dry of a wine as you as you can ever have. And the reason for that is because um, when in beer making, you're using specialty malts that are not 100% fermentable. With wine, you have only the sugar from grapes and then whatever sugar that you uh, bolster it with. More on that in a second. But in both of those cases, all that material is 100% fermentable. So, yeah, th- those those seem like odd numbers if you're just looking at it from a thinking standpoint like beer making. But that's, uh, that's one of the realities of winemaking. One caveat to that is um, in the case of our Concord Rosé, um, I don't know if I should, we should dive into that right now or not, but uh, just going off of what you had said. Um, so, yeah, it, it, in general, the wine will ferment down to basically zero, right? Um, in our case, the rosé ended up with quite a bit of residual sugars, in fact. Uh, we were quite surprised uh, when that happened. Um it was for sure done fermenting. Uh, it reached the bottom. It, it bottomed out. and um, I would most likely attribute that to less than healthy yeast. Okay, could I, be. I may have had less than perfect. Um, I mean, maybe the temperature of the liquid climbed too high and killed off some of the, some of the yeast prematurely. It's just interesting that it happened this way because of all... Of all the batches we've done, all the carboys we've had, or pails, or whatever fermenting vessel, yeah, this is, is this is the only one. That's true. This is the only one yeah. that ended up in this in this fashion where it was a little behind the sugars, and not high like in a in a bad way. In fact, it turned out that it was residual sugars that was very pleasing to to the taste buds. It, was, it turned out very well balanced. There was no back sweetening even involved because of it, how much sugars were left, and it was just delicious. And we were prepared to back sweeten it anyways. So when we saw just how how much sweetness was left over, but like, okay, that's one step we don't have to do. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great, honestly. I yeah. Mean, yeah, and the fact that it turned out not too sweet. Like, so I think our goal when we tr- go to back, I don't know if we're, I'm jumping the gun talking about back sweetening at this point. Let's let's come back to that because we'll I, I do I do have a lot a lot of stuff on back sweetening, but let's talk about gravities first. Yeah. So. The Concord, as I had mentioned, is one of the less sweet grapes. So the gravity that we were able to pull off to pull out from the grapes itself was 1058. Not all that high. I remember last year with the grapes that we brought back, I remember one of them being 1090. So 1058 is way, way below that. 1090 is pretty solid. Um, personally, I would have even added sugar to that to bring up the the end ABV. Um that's just because I like strong wine, though. That's my own personal preference. More on that in a second, too. Uh, the Foch, we pulled off 1073. 
from the grape itself. And in both, and to Rich's point, in both these varieties, we added sugar to bolster to a more appropriate original gravity. Because yes, I like you know I like a heavier wine too. So, so that's a way to do it. And if that's not necessarily what you're going for, by all means, go pick your grapes, get the you know get the juice out, and uh, and and go ahead and pitch and ferment. Um, but realize that you may be limited to seven, eight, nine percent. It, it would certainly that. be a lighter wine, and and maybe some people would like that. So yeah, by by all means, it's uh, however you want to do it. Um, you can make a light wine, or you can supplement the sugars and bring it up to respectable wine ABV levels. So before we talk about the sweetening process, before we pitch the yeast, do you want to talk a little bit about what simple sugar is? And yes. simple sugar has become such a such a significant element of of our winemaking. Sure. So this is pre fermentation. Yes. Okay. I think I think you might be mistaken that we used the simple syrup in our pre fermentation. I think we ended up just actually putting just dropping the sugar right into the must. Damn, you're right. Okay. But uh, I can talk I'll, about I'll, the simple I'll, syrup I'll, though. No, 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 no. That's no, a later stage. Yeah, yeah later later stage. <laughs> You so know, you know in in we'll go back but in retrospect we maybe maybe we should have done that syrup or or just sugar D- done it as a syrup instead of raw sugar so and one be, of the issues adding more liquid one of the issues that we had is for example our concord red had so much juice and pulp that that was one of the pails that busted open was the concords right yeah we literally did not have the volume to add any more sugar. So, right. Um, I agree. Yes, maybe the syrup it be would be the better way to go. Probably mixes in better with the must. Um, if you're in a pinch, I feel if you want to just throw in some sugar and give it a good mix, probably just fine too. I think the yeast will eat it up. Um, I mean, there's gonna you know there's a bunch of fruit and skins floating around anyway and in general you're supposed to come back in and what's called punching the cap during fermentation um so you're you're kind of mixing it up as you go um so yeah i don't know to me either way is appropriate in my opinion agreed but there's only one way to do it when you're back sweetening (laughs) any other points on fermentation before we go on I believe that one of big differences is in uh, beer. A lot of people like to either rehydrate their yeast or create a yeast starter. Mm-hmm. I think in the world of wine, this is not really a thing. Um, pretty yeah, much. You got two options. You can hydrate your yeast or you can dry pitch. Dry pitch. Yeah. Which is the option that we chose, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. There's pluses and minuses with both. It's a familiar conversation. Whatever your preference is, you're not wrong. So, we fermented down. Um, as Rich said, we were, we only got down to a specific gravity for one of them. Um, we followed it along till the other ones got to 1.0, and um, we began our transfers, of which there's several throughout winemaking. And we, for the first time, got to utilize Rich's um, wine press which he inherited from uh, from uh, Uncle Ron, Uncle Ron, <laughs> Uncle Ron from his wife's side, <laughs> or it was from your wife's side, right? It's my wife's side, the yeah. Italian side. 
they've had this thing somewhere. I actually I think it was Uncle in Uncle Bob's possession, but I think it was <laughs> Uncle Ron's. There, there, it's there's a lot of um, mystery surrounding it. I only know <laughs> that one day it just it appeared, and I was like, oh, thank you, the Orlando family. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I didn't know there was mystery surrounding that. I mean, there's missing parts, you know. Oh, well, th- yeah, that part I knew about. <laughs> so but that's anyways, a mystery. <laughs> this this wine press is awesome. It it really is. It's actually quite a substantial size. I know. Um, just looking online at some of these things, they're quite expensive, also. So the fact that I was able to just get my hands on one was great. Uh, one less ex- expense for uh, our wine overhead. Um, and uh, it's quite functional. I mean, you could really press the, all the juice out that you really need out of the skin. Oh, so. yeah. No, it's it's very efficient. I had some sanitation concerns with it just because of how old it was. I made a couple of phone calls and asked some questions, and the overall feedback was proceed as planned. Okay. So uh, that was so post fermentation. That was uh, that was the first stop. Brought, Correct. Uh, brought things over to Rich's backyard, uh, loaded everything into a press, and uh, just punched it down as, as far as we could until every last drop of it was uh, was bottled up into a carboy. That's right. Um, and again, in this case, it's just the reds that we're dealing with. At this time, there were carboys left back at jason's place for the 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 rosés that we had going so yes correct so this is just the reds that we're dealing with at my house with uh with the press i don't know what else to say about the press no i don't think anything so we pressed it transferred it to um carboys and from there it was just it just left to settle out at that point wasn't it well you know what i I might just kind of did we revert back to your last year episode 29 yeah because we oh i did have the press it was not ready to be used um if you do not have a press you can actually still manage i mean uh you could either go back and listen to episode 29 or i'll just remind you um just use your hands and use like a, a either a pail or something and and you can you can definitely um extract um maybe not the most efficient way uh, but you can definitely do it another another way good point yeah we, yeah pressing it down last year without the press was not fun no not we were out on my back deck with uh with muslin bags and yeah it was yeah it was messy don't need to do that again yeah so at that point um you just left to leave it in carboys and settle out i don't think we added our stabilizers that day Correct? That was later on? That was later on. I want to say that we did that after degassing. Yes. Yes, you're correct. Very important phase is degassing. Um, I have a note about degassing. I believe that degassing is the single most significant point of winemaking that differentiates home winemakers. Because the ones that are less proficient will either skip over that step entirely or not do it sufficiently. And what you're left with then is just a bubbly, somewhat carbonated wine that is is not what wine is supposed to taste like. So I'll, I'll take us all back, um, back to the past. So 
three years ago is actually my first go at wine and we did make i did make a Foch variety something we'd made this year um the mistake i made was i did not degas and uh jason is absolutely right um there's definitely some carbonation left in the the wine it's not significant it's not like you're drinking a beer or even champagne it's very 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 subtle but you can feel it on your tongue and it's not really appropriate to wine it's kind of weird um and yeah it's it's don't skip this step um i know you can go buy um a wand to do this which is fantastic me and jason each have one and that's what we used throw um, it onto a drill yeah or i've i've seen some diy versions of this also if that's something you want to try by all means um it's probably free for you so give that a go yeah should move on to stabilizing absolutely yeah this is one of the other very very important steps rich mentioned earlier in the podcast about potassium metabisulfite which is a preservative and is meant to kill off wild yeast it's a combination of potassium metabisulfite and potassium sorbate, which you then add uh, right after your degassing is completed. And what that's supposed to do is to kill off all of the yeast remaining in the uh, liquid. And what's different between that and Camden tablets is this is meant to be permanent. So when you add this volume into your wine at this point, your yeast is 100% done. Nothing's going to happen. This is what gives you the ability to back sweeten, and more on that in, in a minute. But if you don't have, if you don't properly stabilize the wine with those two elements, potassium metabisulfite and potassium sorbate, then what's going to happen right when you add back sweetener into your wine? It's going to re-ferment. And then all your bottles are going to explode, and then you're going to have a disaster on your hands. Potassium sorbate, by the way, if you go to the grocery store and take a look at like your apple juice or something like that, that's what you're going to find probably on the back of the on the label. That's true. It's a very common preservative. Very common. Yeah. We've degassed. We've preserved. So now I think we're going to talk about simple syrup and back sweetening, right? Because that's, yeah. that's right before our bottling phase. Yeah, yeah it would be. So here's, here's a recipe for simple syrup. And everybody write this down. It's a little tough to remember. <laughs> One cup of sugar, one cup of water, and boil it until all the grains of sugar have dissolved. It's that easy. Yep. I hope you took good notes. There'll be a test later on. <laughs> you may need more than a cup. <laughs> yes, exactly. You may I need mean, a I mean, double or triple the, the, that the recipe. One, one cup of water to one cup of sugar is just the ratio. So do your do your multiples, whatever, whatever is, is fitting for the batches that you're making. So in our case, just roughly, would you say what we were like between a three and like five cups of total simple syrup per like a six gallon batch? So I, I know three and a half, I want to say for one of we them. We have three and a half for one. I think the largest uh, addition that we did was closer to seven. Seven. So just to give you kind of a, a pers perspective. So we're looking at six gallon batches and we're using anywhere between like three and like seven cups of simple syrup so now this is the syrup that's the sugar and the water all combined boiled up dissolved um so just so you have an idea of like how what volumes we're talking about here i think three and a half and seven is, is spot on to that i do too um, i just i'm surprised i don't have that here in my notes we did we did end up with a smaller batch uh obviously then we ended up probably using much less simple syrup probably two two and a half cups something like that but 
Again, it has to do with how sweet you want to go or how dry you want to go. And honestly, that to me, that's one of the more like one of the most fun parts of, of this whole process is you're, you're getting down to the end product. Now you have a little bit of control, actually a lot of control oh, of yeah. how that, that product's going to turn out. Yeah. So I guess the key or one of the keys is not is don't overdo it. You can un- yeah. you can under sweeten, but if you over sweeten, there's no going backwards. For sure. So what I would suggest and has worked really well for Rich and I is start building samples based on like one ounce samples and just add little teaspoons of simple syrup and just find a ratio that that fits with your batch. And then when you have that, once you have that ratio, then just do your math about what the total addition for your wine batch is going to be. It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really it really is simple. You're gonna have to convert some units and whatnot, but uh, at the end of it, you you scale up and and your wine turns out how how you want, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah. Let's talk about the tartness too. Oh yeah, that's important. So another carryover from beer making, and some people may call me crazy for this, but cold crashing has a place in winemaking as well. And we did not learn this until we were uh, looking at some websites or right when we left the vineyard. Yeah. Um, I think I think it was actually on our uh, crushing day when we were taking samples that we really noticed mm-hmm. the significant tart. I mean, it really bit on your tongue. Like, it, it was significant. So, yep. at that point, I was quite concerned thinking, okay, we have a quite a lot of volume here and I don't want it to go to waste. Like, what can we do? Um, I have certainly read about some options using chemicals to, to balance or bring down acidity. It's honestly, it's very minimal, the effect that those things can have. Um, and so Jason happened to find this out and, and we put it to use. What what do you think of the, the results of that? I was really impressed by it and I guess from the beginning, I, I did have some concerns about it because I was like, this almost makes too much sense. Why is not? Why is everybody not out there doing this? And um, I mean, for right now, I mean, it did exactly what we what it was set out to do is is just to kind of reduce some of that tart biteness that you were talking about. Oh yeah. And what the article had said is is within certain elements you can make those those uh, quote unquote tarty elements. And, um, and have them crystallize and then fall out of the liquid. Well, that sounds exactly like cold crashing because that's exactly what happens to the yeast when it's introduced into those cold temperatures is they solidify and then they drop out to the bottom. And then when it's all done, then you rack off of that tube that's left down there at the bottom and you're done. Well, that just made perfect sense to me. And that's exactly what we did with this. And so far, it's worked absolutely perfectly. Great parallel to, to beer brewing and um, and honestly, great results. I, I think that it was actually quite a significant acid acidity reduction. I mean, we didn't measure or anything like that, but just just remembering the before and the after, oh, it, it was huge. it was a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, next right. is bottling. Yeah, this is bottle day. So yeah, you can back sweeten right right on bottling day, right? So yeah. So the process for us, Jason, was we had our wine in carboys, and so we racked right into a bottling bucket. Yep. And from there, you basically you can pull a sample, 
uh, make some simple syrup and that's where you can make your ratios and, and scale up and whatnot. And you're already racked into a bottling bucket and you're ready to go. Yeah. Have, have proper tubing, have proper fittings. And we just had our little setup with, uh, all three of us active at every, every given point, whether one person was sanitizing, cleaning or, um, or capping. Or filling, or filling. Yeah, yeah. Exa- exactly. So somebody was doing something at all. At yeah, all times. exactly. It was, no, uh, we were we were busy from from start to finish. No yeah. doubt about it. One point also, um, we ended up using a lot of cleaner throughout this because with each one of these transfers and every one of these um, um, steps that we um, went through, there was a lot of cleaning. And uh, inter- I've introduced Rich to uh, Pro Brewers Wash, which is PBW. Um, which is the is absolutely the best product out there on the market for cleaning your brewing equipment. I mean, just bar none. Agreed. Yeah. So we ended up using a lot of that, and um, Rich now knows. And one point about PBW also that's relevant uh, on the topic of bottling is if you have PBW and use it properly, which is with high high temperature water. Um, it will have a desired effect on commercial wine bottles, which will allow all the labels to peel off um, with, I mean, pretty simply. And um, there you go. Your uh, your wine bottles that you buy commercially then have a second life. I keep all of my wine bottles just for this reason, because I know that every time I make wine with Jason, we're going to scale up and make even more yeah, wine. <laughs> exactly. And we, and we put it to, put it to great use. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I guess, I guess on a, I guess you can't talk about PBW without talking about sanitizing because cleaning and sanitizing always are going hand in hand. Um, always be ready and sanitize at every turn. It's just always be on the lookout and always have your uh, always have a bottle of sanitizer within uh, within arm's length. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we covered did, it pretty we well. Cover, today. Yeah, man, we we really did cover it all. Uh, we haven't drank any wine yet. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are, are we going to talk about this wine? Uh, please, by all means. Let me. Uh, I'll tell you. Let me. Uh, let me open this up. Go ahead. This is the uh, Concord Red. All right. So we have our Concord Red here. I want to say this finished at about 8%. Here. Uh, Jason's journal is being passed to me. Is that the page that's on the Concord Red? It's on the blush. Concord Red. So we did end up with the casualty. Um, we Just before the podcast recording uh, session here, uh, Jason found a, a busted bottle of wine completely unexpected very strange it broke on the in the right in the center kind of the side of the bottle i don't even know how that happened um apparently in the box it just kind of i don't just i don't clanged. i don't know at what point it decided to just break uh but we did have a casualty and there's a mess on jason's carpet so um, yeah. say a prayer for jason that is <laughs> stain can come out much appreciated thank you anyway Concord Red, eight and a half percent. Worth noting with the Concord versus the Foch. These are both red wines that we decided to make. The re- the the Foch is like very 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 deep, almost like blood red. I don't know or purple even mixed yeah. in. Very very deep dark 
wine, red wine. This definitely is not that. This Concord is beautiful red, but a little more clear. It's a fantastic color. It's almost like a cherry Kool-Aid or something. Yeah. It, it, it looks great. Um, it initially was very, very, very tart. We've handled that well. Thanks to the cold crash. Thanks to cold crashing. And I think that we've added an appropriate level of sweetening when we back sweetened. And what do you think, Jason? You took a first sip, right? Nope. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. It's clean. That, that's the first thing that I think of when I drink that. It's got a nice level of sweetness, not, yeah. not over the top. And then right at the end on the finish, I'm getting a little bit of that tartness. So uh, to me, it's a great balance and, and blend. Um, and honestly, it's, it's very juice-like. It's, it's very much like yeah. a grape juice, to be honest. I was just thinking that, yeah. And it is a little bit on the lighter side, being 9%. Um, wow, I mean, was, what a great drinking wine here. Oh yeah, we did good. I could even I could even I see um, chilling this one also. I think it would be better like that. I'd be a little dangerous though because I don't think <laughs> I don't I don't think you could say that, that 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 wasn't grape juice if you had that out of a fridge. We could probably make adult juice boxes with this, Jason. <laughs> I think I think we may have adult found ju- uh, juice boxes. We might have found a thing here. Concord uh, grape juice for adults in a in a juice box. That's brilliant. <laughs> My business business idea, guys. <laughs> Adult juice boxes. <laughs> All right. 2019's wine is in the bag. And I, I told Rich right when we finished the last... We just finished the last of the bottling two days ago. And I looked at Rich and I said, it makes me sad that it's going to be another nine months before we get to delve into this again. Uh, I, I will tell you that I already added grape day picking on the calendar exactly that's one awesome. year that's from, awesome <laughs> from, the, from our session in september <laughs> just to put it put a mark on on the calendar yeah. and uh obviously when it comes around that time you know i'll be checking the website kind of looking around in fact um i've been trying to research um different places to check out um this place is obviously up, a little bit up north from us um little harsher weather conditions and even so, they're they're producing fantastic grapes. But uh, I'd be tempted to see what's available down south more from here, like southern Illinois or the middle of Illinois. Um, I don't know if anyone in social media land, if you know of anything like this, by all means, drop drop a line to us. Um, At yeah, a nice place to brew or nice place to brew on Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah, that would be really great feedback. Uh, anything in the state of Illinois, you know, at any any corner of the state, we'd uh, we'd certainly listen. For sure, just to see what else might be available uh, for as far as grapes go. Um, it'd, it'd be nice to see uh, what, what choices we have here. Got our social media links, and we'll uh, end this by uh, mentioning our website once again. Check us out at www.aniceplacetobrew.com. It's getting uh, it's getting now late into uh, 2019. I don't know uh, for a hundred percent fact that this is going to be the last a nice place to brew in uh, 2019. But uh, regardless, we've got uh, plenty more shows uh, in the uh, in the near future. So uh, so stay with us. Uh, s- check out our social media links. Check out our website and um, keep in touch with us. All right. Thanks again for having me, Jason. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for for coming here, Rich. 
Uh, an early happy holidays to uh, to everybody. Uh, we're getting into the uh, holiday season, and the uh, end of the year is is not far away. So, uh, yeah, twenty 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 is now is now very close. Rich, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Likewise, thank you. Yeah, let's uh, send this one out and raise a glass. It takes a lot of good beer to make. Well, I guess we have to revise that now. It takes a lot of good wine to make great wine. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.